0: Hello, welcome again to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram with the account at Books Beatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. I'm joined today by Patty Gallo Stedman to discuss her book, Diary of a Beatle Maniac. Patty's book romps through the heady roller coaster days of Beatlemania as seen through the eyes of one. Philadelphia Schoolgirl and her band of Beatle Buddies. Compiled from the author's own diary and extensive scrapbooking, this book provides a unique and necessary insight into what it was actually like living through Beatlemania. Patty Gallo-Stemman, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm fine and hello to you today.
0: Your book is a a really fascinating little window into a world which must seem like so long ago and so far ago in the past. I was hoping to start off by asking you, what was the initial inspiration about publishing this diary? Obviously you'd had for so many years, what was it that led you to share it with with the world?
1: Well, you know, I thought over the decades and it's been many decades that Beatle fans were not represented in books and also in movies that much. Um, most, you know, are history books about the Beatles, but not about Beatle maniacs in America. Um, I just saw a couple of those, And uh, I just thought um, it was time. The, the, the real kernel of how this started was that, I, I'm a journalist by profession. And back in the 70s, I was working for a daily metropolitan paper in Philadelphia, and it was 1974. And I had the idea to write a Sunday article for my newspaper on 10 years after Beatlemania in the States. So I wrote this article and I used my my diaries and things that I had. And I I got a lot of good feedback from the article. And I always had it in the back of my mind that, hey, someday this is the book. <laughs> so that's how it worked. And as as the decades went on and I went to you know, Beatle conventions and stuff, I saw that there was was a need for this. Um, Our generation's passing. We helped to make it happen. We should have a voice. And actually, it's not only me that thinks this way. Uh, I got some information from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ohio. They actually wanted to put my book in their archives along with any fan memoirs that are coming up. Because you know, we'll be the people when you research in the future. Uh, our story will be told.
0: It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, <laughs> Thanks. I literally inhaled it. You know, the the book itself, and in an afternoon, um, it, it, it really fascinated me because there's so little, as you say, that there's you know there's just not enough of books for the people that were there, um, which obviously you were. Um, if we could just rewind and go back to your first kind of encounters with the Beatles. Obviously, the famous the famous uh, February night of Ed Sullivan is, is the moment that, um, you know, 73 million of you were watching uh, and and fell in love with with the Beatles, as many people have since. If we could just go back to then. Firstly, do you remember being aware of the Beatles before that Ed Sullivan show?
1: yes i was aware of them before and i'll tell you there were two different encounters i had prior to ed sullivan Mm -hmm. uh both were about a month before the ed sullivan show in february there was a black and white video that was on an old um jack parr entertainment show on tv he had a friday evening entertainment show he had been to england in the autumn and he had his uh people uh tape a, a small beatles concert he put it on American TV just as a a small, you know, entry in his, his entertainment show. Mm. That was, I think that was January 3rd, 1964. Uh, The same, that same weekend, uh, one of our local metropolitan papers in Philadelphia, where I I live, uh, had a, a black and white, I guess it was a profile of who the Beatles were and girls screaming. And, you know, I saw both of those and it was exciting, but it didn't really sink in until, you know, the night of the Ed Sullivan show, which was the night, you know, for, <laughs> for fans. And the funny thing about the Ed Sullivan show, of course, is that uh, we watched, we knew it was coming. We watched it. And each Beatle fan, female Beatle fan, and I, 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 we were mostly girls back then um, in America. Mm. We actually picked our favorite Beatle that night. And generations later, and years later, we still have the same favorite beetle. It's really? just weird. Yes, it, I have two good friends of mine who I go to beetle conventions with. They're very close to me. They both wrote fan memoirs, and uh, they both ha- are stuck with the same beetle after you know fifty some years. It's absolutely funny. <laughs> but true.
0: <laughs> so, so what was it about them? on that, on that night. And before, obviously that you said that you saw them previously, can you kind of sum up the feelings that you felt when you saw them on, on TV that night?
1: Yeah, it was, of course it was in black and white. You got to remember that. And, and the TVs sometimes weren't that good, but it, the, it was the music and it was their, their looks. They were very energetic and they, they looked like no, group I've ever seen before here, you know, I mean, we were coming out of the Elvis years and there was doo-wop that was going on and, mm. you know, the Beach Boys were just starting, but it was like, it was just a, a volcano that just erupted because of the music was a bit different than the rock and roll, you know, that we we heard and also uh, their looks and their suits and their haircuts. So it was a little bit of everything, but it was, it just clicked, you know, and and there we went.
0: So the obvious question is, who was your favourite on that night? Who was it that you you kind of fell for the most?
1: Okay, well, I think, as you see, it's Sir Paul. And uh, he's been my favourite now since February 1964.
0: It's interesting, just a slight kind of side question that I've thought of while we're talking here. I was thinking about the difference between UK Beatles fans and US Beatles fans and the relationship that they had. Now my dad uh, was born in 1948 Uh, so in preparation for our conversation uh, today I phoned him up last night and and was talking to him a bit about his experiences of liking the Beatles as a UK male and he said that the UK didn't have that shared moment that America had In, 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 in Britain obviously over the course of 63, you might have heard them on the radio or seen them on one TV show or seen them at your local cinema or whatever. Right. In, in 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 the US, it, it seemed to happen, didn't it, for everyone in that, in that one moment.
1: That one moment was so important to us and maybe we didn't realize that it was going to be so important because, I, hey, I was 14 years old, you know, but um, it was that one moment and Right after that moment, I, I went back to school that Monday, and uh, the girls and I, you know, start talking. Our little groups start talking about the Beatles, and that actually was the whole catalyst that mm-hmm. Sunday night Ed Sullivan show. And and of course, we when you mentioned the 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 fans in the UK, one of the things that we did as American girls is a lot of us immediately got British pen pals. I did have a British pen pal, and she used to send me clippings and magazines and gave me the address of where I could get British albums. And it was just a wonderful give and take between the cultures at that time and very early on before the internet and everything else. So it was a really good friendship thing, too, between between the countries.
0: That's lovely. Um, so you mentioned kind of going into school and discussing the Beatles with um, your, your kind of classmates. In the yeah. in, in the book, in the diaries, you, you kind of call them Beetle Buddies. Yeah. Um, was that like that kind of community? Did that kind of happen overnight? Did you all kind of find each other and, and form those friendships?
1: Yeah, it, it actually did. I I call them Beatle Buddies now just because of the book, but we didn't call ourselves anything back then. The fans, I guess, and uh, we kind of grouped together I had a group of four and uh, and and they were I went to a a Catholic girls high school which was very strict so we weren't allowed to wear our beetle things on our uniforms or uh, and the nuns were very strict that I had in my I made a beetle calendar out of pictures and things. It was ripped down from the inside of my locker by one of the nuns. So it was a very strict atmosphere at school, but we kind of huddled together and we became, you know, groups. I had this one group and then outside of school, there was another girl and me who were Beatle fans and we Beatle together and another group. So it was very interesting, but it all came about right after Ed Sullivan. And that right. month was like the catalyst, you know, <laughs>
0: So you mentioned earlier, again, that you kind of all chose a favourite on that, that February night. Um, how kind of important was it to have a favourite? Was that a way of like, identifying, that's a Ringo person, that's a George person or whatever?
1: Yeah, it was very important. It just happened naturally, you know, act naturally. That's what <laughs> it was. But we could always identify us by the things we did. For example, a Ringo fan would wear a lot of rings. And, uh, you know, a John fan would start wearing one of those caps, you know, the, the captain's cap. And it was just, you kind of, my, my George fan in my group, she started taking guitar lessons immediately. It was, um, it was just amazing. And, and it was very important to have a fan, uh, one beetle for your own and sometimes we've been fantasized, you know, because we were 14, that, oh, we're, we're getting married to this guy and we're going to have twins and all this kind of weird stuff. But we were 14 and it was a very innocent time. you got to yeah. keep in mind, which I'm sure your dad must have told you, too. It was a different, different time for 14 year olds. We were like 10, you know, kids, eight kids today. So it, it was important. We, I never met a Beatle fan that didn't have a favorite Beatle right okay and and that's just the way it is it's yeah. it's kind of the culture of Beatlemania girls anyway I I really didn't know many boys who were fans I went to an all-girls school mm. and and we were surrounded by the girls so mm. th- that's who I can talk about today yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, so we we'll, we we'll move on to your first experience of of actually seeing the Beatles live which is something that not many people really can, can say. Uh, so uh, you go to the, the Philadelphia Convention Hall and I, I think you, you, you use a really interesting word uh, to describe it in the book. You, you kind of call it a shock, which I think is a, a fascinating way of describing a concert, you know. Um, if you could just, if you could just talk, kind of share with us your, your memories of, of the concert itself and the build-up to it and what was yeah. it about it that, that made it feel like a shock?
1: Okay, well, I have to start by telling you that I spent the whole day at Convention Hall, as many of us did. But my girlfriend, Kathy, and I uh, started at nine o'clock in the morning, we took the trolley car out to West Philly, where this was. And there was no barricades up, there were no police at that time, because the concert was at 730 in the evening. So we went behind the barricades, we went behind Convention Hall, it was a very big building where they had conventions they had graduations they had basketball games that sort of thing we went behind this big old stone building and we hid because we knew if they were taking the limo in or the truck that's where they were going to go and we stayed there from early in the morning until around one o'clock hiding okay nobody came nothing happened we needed a bathroom break you know about that time and i said well let's sneak out and then we'll sneak back and my friend kathy said fine so we went out and lo and behold by one o'clock the place was full of girls outside there were barricades up and policemen we couldn't get back after we took our bathroom break there was no way to get behind the barricades again so that was kind of exciting early on And people were carrying signs, you know, homemade signs. Hello, Ringo. It was really kind of cool. I took some pictures. I have some in my book. Mm -hmm. Um, So we took the trolley car home that afternoon, later, to come get dressed up in our little mod clothes, you know, and come back to the concert. And we took the trolley back around six. Convention Hall, I have to tell you, this is the whole premise of the whole thing. It is not set up for concerts. It was an old building. The first, the, the 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 main floor was completely flat because there were basketball games and sports activities. Then you had the amphitheater where the, the, the seats went up, which you could see if you're looking down. What they did was they put rows and rows of folding old wooden chairs on the main floor, which was a big mistake because I was on the main floor. I got did not see them, everything was flat and it was very dark. The acoustics in there were awful. There was nothing set up for a concert. You could, couldn't even hear it. All you heard was screaming girls and we were all standing on top of these rickety wooden chairs and we were falling over on the floor. My girlfriend Diane, who is a big John fan, she uh, cut her leg on, on the, the, when she fell. Um, people were kind of miserable the girls were kind of upset that were on the main floor because we couldn't see them we couldn't hear them so it was kind of a shock in one way because I guess I expected to see them the way I saw them on Ed Sullivan or I could visually see them but it was very dark in there and you could hardly hear anything for the the time that they were on and one thing I really remember or actually I recall now My dad took a picture of me when I came home. I guess he picked me up. I can't remember that part. I'm all flushed. And it looked like I was really upset and crying and sort of in shock. So in the first concert, I saw them in concert three times. Mm. And the first concert was in a convention center. They were the worst because it was hard to hear them and see them early on. The other concerts were in uh, sports stadiums later on. There you could see them because they were big sports stadiums. They looked like ants, but you could see them. And you can hear them because their sound systems were better in the big sports stadiums. So that's what the shock was about. I just couldn't see them or hear them, but I was close to them. And that made all the difference.
0: (laughs) Was it like, I don't don't want to say an anti-climax, but obviously, you know, I can imagine you must have thought, so many nights building up to it, going to see them in the flesh, you know.
1: Oh, yes. yeah. Was
0: it something that, you know, looking back now, it sounds like quite a chaotic, it sounds like a world away from going to see Paul McCartney in concert, you know, oh, today.
1: Definitely. Um,
0: definitely. Where did you see them the other two times then?
1: I saw them both uh, the next time in 1966, in, uh, first in Philadelphia, in JFK Stadium in August. And then one week later... We went to Shea Stadium and saw them in New York, but the '66 concert, not the '65, and that was August 23rd.
0: So that was that, that. was the final tour, wasn't? That was the last US tour. So final
1: tour, and we went up by train uh, from Philly. Okay. So we were, that was exciting. Um,
0: moving on, the, uh, a character in the diaries that that sprung out at me that I wasn't expecting to kind of come across is the friendly jovial figure of Victor Spinetti the man that the only man that appeared in all three of the, the Beatles kind of fictional films and worked with John and worked with Paul uh, later on if you could just share the the story you, you ended up kind of befriending Victor and you and you ran his fan club didn't you uh, so if you could just talk about how you kind of uh, first encountered Victor and, and how that led to you starting the fan club
1: oh gosh yeah we we actually knew about him from, you know, he was in A Hard Day's Night. And by the way, do you know the reason he was in all the Beatle movies? George Harrison's mother really liked him as an actor. And she told him that he had to be in all their movies. So that's how it happened. yeah, so It was really funny. But anyway, um, I read, you know, it, we got our news in those days from the disc jockeys on the radio And from the newspapers that we had no internet in the newspaper. There was an article that said that uh, it was right after the Beatles appeared in a a convention hall in Philadelphia. There was a lot of Beatle articles in the newspapers. So there was a little blurb in the newspaper stating that Victor Spinetti, who had been in hard days night was going to appear in a theater uh, musical in Philadelphia prior to the Broadway run. And the musical was a Joan Littlewood production of Oh, What a Lovely War. So we knew when he was coming, which was later that month, we put together, me and my girlfriends, what hotel he was probably going to stay in, which was a leading hotel in Philly, the Bellevue Stratford, the old grand dame of Philadelphia. So I wrote a letter to him at the Bellevue Stratford. He got it. When he came to town later in September, he answered me. He wrote a beautiful letter back, which is in my book, Uh the first page of it. And he said, well, come on to the theater and uh, we'll talk about, you know, the Beatles and things. Come on. He he wrote about the Beatles in his letter. And then Victor figured Beatles fans would be his fans. It was all one world. And he loved that. He also told us, and I interviewed him for the book, he told me that when he was young, he was a fan of Marlene Dietrich and other actors, and he longed to be close to them, and it never really happened. So he said he understood Beatle fans trying to get close to him to get close to the Beatles. He was fine with it. So we went up to the theater, which was the Forest Theater in Center City, Philly, just a little ways from my high school, which was also in the center of Philadelphia. We have our uniforms on after school. He would greet all the girls or other girls besides us. And he would come to the stage door when they were having rehearsal after rehearsal or before. And he would tell us tales of the Beatles. It was just amazing. The weather was nice. It was still very early autumn. We would come back every every day for like two weeks. We went to see the play on a Saturday. We brought him a big cake. It was sitting on our lap through the whole the whole theater presentation. We decided before he left uh, for New York and Broadway that, yeah, we think we were going to start a fan club. This was our four girls from our little Beatle group. And we, we told him about this, and he was delighted. He had fan clubs in London. He also had... Um, one that started up in, I think, in Brooklyn and in New England, uh, Boston. So we kind of linked in with them at times and with news. He would send us information, too, um, and I'll get to that. But when he went up to Broadway, we took, we were all 14, 15. We took the train up to New York from Philadelphia to go see him. And he actually was so kind when we got there. He took us into his, his dressing room. He, he was so happy to see us. He'd been in touch with us. And uh, one thing he did, he was just such a kind guy. He, it was after the play, he said, would you like to know what it's like to stand on a Broadway theater stage? And we, the four of us said, oh my goodness. So he, he, there was nobody in there, the play was over. Mm-hmm. He actually took us on the stage. And we could look out and see what it was like to be on stage in Broadway. He was just a very kind person, mm-hmm. and um, we started the fan club. We had a small fan club, maybe sixty girls from school, fifty cents for the, uh, you know the dues, which went on forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a very serious club. Like I have a girlfriend who had a George Harrison fan club that was serious. Mm-hmm. My ours was a little bit more lighthearted. So he would send us things after he got back to England. He was, he got back to England because he was doing, um, I think he was doing Skyscraper on, on the, um, in London uh, on the stage. And then he got the call to do help, which was called Beatles Two, And he went off to the Bahamas and he went off to Austria and he kept sending us letters and things candles from george harrison's 21st birthday cake stuff like that and then it was my my 16th birthday while he was in uh austria filming. and he was sending us little notes my mother god bless her heart had uh written to victor everybody knew victor in the family, all the family. <laughs> he was just great and she wrote to him and said it's patty's 16th birthday coming up in may can you do something special for her well they were in Austria, there's a postcard from Austria that I have in the back of the postcard to Patty from Paul McCartney, happy birthday love. And then I call this my piece de resistance, is a lock of Paul McCartney's hair taken from the studio hairdresser at Twickingham. It's encased in plastic, it's a relic. <laughs> <laughs> I slept with it under my pillow for two years. Okay. Wow. And I kept looking to see, do we have the same color hair? <laughs> Is it close? <laughs> that's, that's, that was Victor. Okay, He was amazing. And then, okay. So after Beatlemania, what happened? I, I moved to Sweden and Finland for my career and, and my marriage and uh, Victor kept in contact he, all through the years. I did get to see him in London once and I did get to see him at the Fest for Beetle fans in Las Vegas back around, I guess it was 2006, 7. I mm. got to interview him for my book. By that time, he was getting older. He had diabetes problems and things, but he was still Victor. Mm. And uh, I was in touch with him until he went into Hospice in Wales mm. in 2012. And he mm. passed in 2012 on Paul McCartney's birthday.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing both those items and those those really wonderful memories of Victor. What, what, what <laughs> lo- lovely memories there. Um, moving on. Uh, obviously through the sixties, the Beatles they change. You know, the the Ed Sullivan Beatles within three years uh, are the Sergeant Pepper Beatles. Um, yes. you know, they're almost unrecognizable from the, the those four guys that you you all you know fell for that that night. Right. Did. You know you and you know speaking for yourself and some of your the other beatles kind of buddies, did yeah. your relationship with the Beatles change in those kind of three or four years?
1: yeah, they did. I mean you got to remember that when we first saw them and Ed Sullivan, we were fourteen, we were freshmen in in high school, okay, which is a young age, and then their music started changing, and we started changing so. The first year, the second year, and of course, running after Victor, you know, it was a lot of good fun. By the third year that we were in, in high school and the fourth year, they were getting more into their psychedelic times, you know, and they were changing. We were at the point where we love them, but it's time now to think about preparing for college or going into the work world. And we had a little bit of a different agenda by the third year and the fourth year. And then of course their music was changing. And a lot of us really look, preferred the early and middle Beatles as young kids. And the psychedelic stuff we really didn't get into until we, we got into college. And that was, you know, a year later and uh, from after graduation. So uh, yeah, we, we changed, they changed at the same time. And mm-hmm. the core of hardcore Beatle Maniacs that we had at 1964, 65, even 66. We were growing up Mm. and we weren't there. And even even when we went to the two concerts in uh, the the summer of 66, I did feel different. You know, I dressed up a little bit and we were I wasn't screaming. Uh, We went we sat there in in the uh, the sports halls and it was a bit of a different feeling. We were getting older, you know, we were 17 going on 18. Not that we didn't love him anymore, but it had to change. You know? And some of us even got boyfriends, you know, so, but, uh, but we still had this great love. And even after 50 some years, there's this weird, great love. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, we'll come to that. So what, um, so, you know, things like the White Album and, and Abbey Road, you know, w- were you still, you and your friends would you still be you know front of the queue at the record store to to buy those things or by that point life kind of had had overtaken you a bit
1: you are so right life kind of overtook us and I remember I was on a date with with a a boyfriend from I was starting college and it was beautiful hearing the songs I remember the song was coming out of the doorway in town and at this little shop and uh it was a different feeling, you know, I love them, but it wasn't the same queuing up for, you know, albums early on and, and screaming with your girlfriends and getting together in their Beetle bedrooms, you know, that was from, from the floor to the ceiling with pictures. It was very, it was a very different feeling. We grew, we were growing up and that era that was coming in with their, you know, the, the last kind of era for them was it was a little bit foreign for, for me and my okay. friend, we okay. still love them, you know, but it was a little bit different.
0: That's fascinating. Um, just, just, just going on through um, through the years. Again, I'm obviously I'm speaking as uh, from a, a UK perspective a little bit, but the kind of nostalgia for the Beatles,
1: yeah,
0: I think it. You know, that really kicks in. I think kind of in, into the late eighties and the and the early nineties, maybe, and then with things like Anthology and and all that, you know, the Beatles are kind of yeah. back on the front page again. I was I'm, I was curious to find out. Through, you know, the 70s and the 80s, obviously, you know, you said you moved around places, You people people get married, they have children, they, you know, lose parents, and all, all life kind of happens. Did you still feel loyal to the Beatles? Did you still play the music? And
1: Well, when they kind of went on their solo careers, yeah. Uh, except for Paul, I kind of lost track because I was, as you said, I got on with my life, you know, mm. it was, uh, it was what life would happen. And uh, they were always in the back of my mind. And, but it wasn't the same thing. I, I didn't keep up with everything that they all, you know, four of them were doing. Hmm. Um, I kind of kept up with wings a bit. And and the kids, when I, I had my kids, I, I moved back here to the States and they, I made a, I made a, I remember making a vow, get all their albums on, on CDs. And in the car, as I drove them to their, you know, Girl Scout meetings and everything, I played all their albums and that my daughters really got used to from small kids listening to the Beatles, the old Beatles. So that was something that happened. Now, some, some of my friends, uh, they, they kept up with a lot of the stuff they did through the years. You know, they, they could quote albums, single albums, everybody had, but I didn't, I, I, I had taken a little bit of a back, you know, a back step. And, and that was fine because It started hitting me again when I started thinking about, well, I was always in touch with Victor, okay? Mm But he he had his own different career by that time. But uh, I I just thought that, you know, here it comes again. I'm feeling it. I'm going to, I started going to Beatle conventions in the States when I moved back here, even before I moved back here when, when I would come for vacation. So it started hitting me again say around 2001, 2002. Mm. And that's when I started to really think it's time for this book. OK, mm. I would go to the conventions. I would see that there wasn't weren't too many books. And, and the thing is, yes, there are a couple fan books out there. And mm. as I said, I have some girlfriends who wrote them, but nobody had a journalism background mm. and I, I was a journalist for many decades. So I took it from a journalist background. And I also had a lot of information because not only did I keep a diary from when I was 12, which had a lot of Beatles stuff in it, but I had a, a, a column in a small newspaper in Philadelphia for teenagers, which I did put a lot of Beatles stuff and music stuff in uh, and I kept scrapbooks. So I had all this that I saved, which I used when it finally hit me that now it's the time to do it because we're all getting you know older and uh my generation is passing so it needs to be said it mm. needs to be written down and that's that's what what i did you know and it, it it i took that little back step for a little while so
0: just to um to kind of conclude really uh, two questions really first of all what is it that you think um it is that that meant people are still so fascinated with them what is it, do you think, that, you know, you, you all, like you said, you all watch that, that show in, in 64, you all watch Ed Sullivan, um, and it, it's understandable, you know, there's so many things in pop culture, people love, you know, things right. from the 70s, people love Greece, or people love Duran Duran or whatever, but all through the years, but the Beatles seem to have this, this thing where they appeal to so many different generations rather than just the generation like you that were there to experience it firsthand. What do you yeah. think it is about them that, that fascinates 50 plus years later?
1: You know, I, I really believe it's some it's music and the culture of Beatlemania. I mean, you didn't have anything like that. I, even with Elvis, you didn't have that in, in America, maybe not in Britain, but in America. Why did they come up? Why, were, why, why did they explode so much at, during the Ed Sullivan time? And, I, and I can I've seen a lot of theories and the one that I go with because I lived through it is that John Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, he was assassinated in November, on November 22nd, 1963. <clears throat> all of a sudden our lives changed. It, it's, it's like a little bit like COVID, but, but in a way that people were so depressed and people were so upset and sad. And mourning all that winter, November, December, January, And we were kids. We were 14, 15, 16. We needed something to bring us out of our solemn mourning period. And the Beatles hit right at that time. Mm -hmm. It was the perfect storm for the Beatles exploding in America. We needed something. When the music was great and the guys, there's a whole culture surrounding it, and it worked out really well. So, uh, you know, that to me is kind of a reason why they were so popular at the time. And and they're timeless. I mean, their music is timeless. I, I can listen to anything today and think it was written, you know, today. It's like, it's amazing. So that's why I think that they kind of are evergreen. They just keep going on and they're going to keep going on. And one generation has been passing it down to the next. And I've seen this at Beatle conventions, at the Mm -hmm. Fest for Beatle fans, where you have grandparents, you have their kids and their grandkids that are all Beatle Mm fans. So it's gonna stick around.